Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. This is Eric Siegel, author of The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where every Friday I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book. This show has been named one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, and has millions of downloads and listeners in over 185 countries. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, connect and message me on LinkedIn, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And to make sure you never miss an episode, you have a few options. The best way is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, or go to marketingbookpodcast.com and sign up for email notifications. Or if you're on LinkedIn, find the Marketing Book Podcast page and click the subscribe button and maybe meet some of your fellow listeners. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Dr. Eric Siegel to talk about his book, The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment, published by the MIT Press. Eric Siegel, PhD, is a leading consultant and former Columbia University professor who helps companies deploy machine learning. He's the founder of the long-running Machine Learning Week conference series, the instructor of the acclaimed online course, Machine Learning Leadership and Practice, end-to-end mastery, executive editor of the Machine Learning Times, and a frequent keynote speaker. His previous book is the best-selling Predictive Analytics, The Power to Predict Who Will Click, Buy, Lie, or Die, which has been used in courses at hundreds of universities and was featured on episode 74 of the Marketing Book Podcast in 2016. Eric's interdisciplinary work bridges the stubborn technology business gap. At Columbia, he won the Distinguished Faculty Award when teaching graduate computer science courses in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Later, he served as a business school professor at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. Eric's many media appearances include uh, Bloomberg TV and radio, Business News Network in Canada, Israel National Radio, NPR, Marketplace, Radio National in Australia, Business Week, CBS Money Watch, the European Business Review, the Financial Times, Forbes, Harvard Business Review, the Huffington Post, the New York Times, Newsweek, Scientific American, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. And interesting fact, he is a dancing machine. I'm sexy and I know it. Dr. Siegel, congratulations on the AI playbook, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas, and it's great to be back. So, Dr. Siegel, may I, may I call you Eric? Absolutely. Okay, thank you. I didn't know if we were at that stage of our relationship. So, your bio is about as impressive as they come, but tell us about your impressive uh, worldwide dancing career. 
Well, you know, I did a lot of theater in college and high school, um, and I just I just can't shake it off. Uh, the, the you know we 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 mentioned it briefly uh, last time I was on the show, but that is a educational rap music video. It's the best ever educational rap music video about predictive analytics, which is another word for enterprise use cases of machine learning. It's called Predict This. And you can find it at predictthis.org. And it's going to be on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. Oh, oh, that's great. Yeah. So just try to, uh, listeners, please listen to the lyrics. You'll learn a lot. Try not to get distracted by the campy video too badly. Uh, the lyrics will tell you everything you want to know about predictive analytics. Now, there is a second rap music video, but it's hidden in the middle of my course. It's oh. the, 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 the center summary video of 141 instructional videos. So that's a, that's a hidden one, but someday we'll release that publicly. Oh, well. please let me know. And also, there's another video that I always liked, which was you were in Sri Lanka at some uh, you know beachside discotheque. And you came in and you started dancing and you really, you really had it going on. And that, as I understand it, was part of the B-roll that was used because there's also footage of you like in Athens and in New York and uh, other places around the world where you're dancing. And people need to understand you're not just dancing. You've got on like white pants with suspenders and a plaid shirt and a bow tie and a pocket protector and glasses with the mm. tape in the middle. I mean, you've, you've, got, it, you've got it down. Well, no, that's that's how I normally dress, but but um, that's a joke. Yes, I carried that costume around with me uh, on on various trips. Most of them had a work related and a fun component. Uh -huh. And if you watch just the main predict this video, there's a center portion where you see me at all these locations. Yes, um, and yes, that's the B roll. The B roll's right there on YouTube as well. Well, I'm going to include that B roll from uh, oh. from the disco in, uh, in in Sri Lanka. So I am so honored and flattered that you contacted me about coming back on the okay. show before I even knew about your book. Thank you. Are you kidding? Of course. You know. You know what? You're. You are uh, the late. The late show personality of books. This, this, <laughs> this is the thought. You can't not be try to be on this podcast if you write a book. Thank you. Thank you. Please tell all the other authors. I love doing it. I, I'm the sports reporter who can't believe he gets to interview the big uh, sports stars. So I appreciate you doing that. I, I can't believe you want to come back. Uh, clearly, the first time wasn't a big enough hit to your reputation. But, you know, I almost had to say no to you, uh, Eric, because um, uh -huh. on this, the, the AI playbook, because the topic of machine learning and AI has already been mastered by so many self-proclaimed experts on LinkedIn, mm. uh, many of whom were quite recently experts on the metaverse and uh, <laughs> cryptocurrency. Idiot! There's a little bit of hype out there right now. Yeah, and you know what? I don't think I've read as much demystification of the hype <laughs> as I read in your book, and we're going to talk about a lot of that. I, I loved it. I loved it. I don't know. Maybe you've, you may have uh, upset some of these uh, AI experts out there, but... One thing I want to say, though, because this is a little bit outside my usual uh, area of expertise, as it is, and you're going to be doing a lot of podcasts to promote your book, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the sharpest guy who's going to be interviewing you about it, at least in terms of the the knowledge. Is just keep in mind that, uh, like Forrest Gump, I'm not a smart man. I, and I'm not a data scientist, okay? Uh, but there are probably a few who are going to listen to this interview who who are, and because of that, I'm not going to even try to act like I know 
what I'm talking about other than having read the book. Because if I tried to put on that I was a really smart guy and I knew what was going on, it would end up sounding like Steve Martin in uh, this bit. Hey, I don't like to um, gear my material to the audience, but um, I'd like to make an exception because I was told uh, that there is a convention of plumbers in San Francisco this week, and I understand about 30 of them came down to the show tonight. So before I come out, I worked up a joke especially for the plumbers, and uh, now those of you who aren't plumbers probably won't get this and won't think it's funny, but I think those of you who are plumbers will really enjoy this, and uh, so if you're not a plumber, please just bear with me for a while and just kind of, you know, hold off on this, but I would like to do this for the plumbers. Here we go. This lawn supervisor was out on a sprinkler maintenance job, (laughs) and he started working on a Finlay sprinkler head with a Langstrom 7-inch gangly wrench. Well, just then a little apprentice leaned over and said, uh, you can't work on a Finley sprinkler head with a Langstrom 7-inch wrench. <laughs> well, this infuriated the supervisor, so he went and got volume 14 of the Kinsley Manual. And he reads to him and says, the Langstrom 7-inch wrench can be used with a Finley sprocket. Just then, the little apprentice leaned over and says, it says sprocket, not socket. <laughs> well, those when we're supposed to be here, this show, or... Was that- so I quote that all the time. Oh, you do? With my, with all my old friends. I said sprocket, not socket. Yeah. <laughs> well, you see, we're brothers from an, uh, different mothers here. That's, but yeah. uh, the, the fact is, that's probably the most technical part of this entire interview we're going to talk about. So this uh, book is uh, not as technical as people might think it is. It's very much about how to sell change management. That was the big takeaway for me. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is, has to do a little more specifically about machine learning, but the framework that you have in the book that we're going to talk about could work for many aspects of change management. You know, that, that's what that's what my uh, my thought was. And it has a lot more to do with the, the humans. However, there, I do want to mention one thing. There's a, you know, I, I always post a picture of the book that's before I do the interview primarily to get the author's attention. But I get a lot of engagement from folks who are marketing book podcast listeners. And one listener in Rotterdam, Eric Van Den Herrick, he Mm -hmm. said, and you may have seen it, I think you even liked this comment. He said, I'm interested to learn more about how this playbook connects to impactful marketing and sales, which is a very fair question for a listener to the marketing book podcast to ask. And we're going to talk about some aspects of that. But there's a couple of the reasons why I think this is an important book. And one of them is this concept of management by in-flight magazine, where let's say you're a marketer, you're head of sales, you, you're there at the conference room and the CEO comes in, throws down an in-flight magazine from a flight they caught that weekend and says, uh, AI, uh, put, put everything in it. Go, go, go do that AI thing. And last week, it could have been TikTok or <laughs> anything yeah. like that. So you need to kind of be familiar with this because this interview and this book will help arm you with the kinds of questions, at least, to ask uh, to help your company be more successful. And also, one other thing, I've got a – well, he's a drinking buddy of mine, and he is a data scientist, for, works for a Fortune 500 company, and he – uh, has read some of the books that have been on the podcast, like this one. He hasn't read this one yet, but it's the kind of thing where he is actually reading these things, not because he's going to learn a whole lot, a little bit, but so that he can explain it to what he calls civilians. <laughs> because yeah. as a data scientist, he's always trying to 
I don't want to say trick the organization, but he's trying to guide them to a better use of, of his time and, and, and expertise. So that was that was another thing that, that came to mind here. One thing I want to mention, though, you've got a few other URLs, and we're going to link to them all on this website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, but you've got um, bizml.com about the framework, and you've got the machine learning glossary, and then also information about uh, civil rights data, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the ethics uh, of all of that. So in this conversation, just so the listeners, I may use the term ML, which refers to machine learning. I think everyone knows AI, but I'm not talking about Merrill Lynch, the wealth management company, nor Millimeter, a unit of volume. Milla, milliliter. Milliliter. Yes, I'm sorry. I said millimeter. See? Again, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm here to help. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Siegel. So, but before we get into the, the meat of the book, let me ask a few really basic questions, which is my specialty. Thank you very much. How is this book different from your previous book, Predictive Analytics? So the previous book showed how machine learning works under the hood and, and how it's valuable. This book is on how to capitalize on it, how to actually generate value. And you mentioned a, a moment ago, a lot of it's about change management. So you might be asking yourself, why would a book on AI or machine learning, whatever you want to call it, be about change management? Well, very simply, if you care about this technology actually delivering value, actually making a difference for the organization so things run more effectively, more efficiently, more profitably, whatever your KPI or metric might, might be for the business... That means you have to run things differently. You have to actually change. So that's sort of the big, ultimately, that's the big disconnect is right now, there's this sort of big separation and this communication dilemma between the experts and their stakeholder, their client, the data scientists, the quantitative experts, the quants, and you know the executives, the line of business managers where the operation might improve. There's this disconnect, but the, the, the place where it disconnects is the number crunching is one thing. The other is to actually implement or deploy it, to launch it. And, and that's why the subtitle of the book is The Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment. It doesn't get deployed. It turns out that most new machine learning initiatives actually fail to reach that last inch, <laughs> the culmination where it actually deploys. Would that be like 80% or more that, that just die on the vine? Yeah, there's sort of this statistic thrown around a bunch saying 80% or more. Um, that is a little hard to measure directly, but it's probably around 60 or 80%, depending on how you measure it. And so we've done some surveys of data scientists, other people. IBM recently came out with a, um, uh, a result that turns out, um, according to executives, that the average return on these projects is... Nothing that is actually something but lower than the cost of capital on average. Now, there are successes, but so much of the time, this disconnect and sort of failing to plan for the change management part of it, of actually implementing and deploying it, is what really gets things stuck and the stakeholders get cold feet. Um, the project fails to launch. So mm -hmm. there's plenty of glowing successes. I try to cover those in the book. But um, with this book, I'm trying to bring to the world a common nomenclature over a business practice that must be followed, not just te technical techniques, methods, and tools and best practices, but organizational ones. As you said, it's about the humans, and it does. That's sort of the irony is that for this most advanced technology to be valuable, what has to change is in the humans much more so than the technology. The technology is mature. The number crunching sound. But to plan holistically and collaboratively across the enterprise so that then you actually implement or deploy and launch what's been learned from data, 
That's where you need an end-to-end practice. So I call the practice BizML. That's the website also for this book, bizml.com, the business practice for running machine learning projects so that they deliver value. So in terms of who this book is for, I don't want people delisting themselves and not listening to the rest of this, but you write that this book is a business how-to, but not a technical how-to. Explain what's going on. Oh, that's for sure. I mean, if you're a data scientist and what you want to do is learn how to do the number crunching part, right? So you want to use machine learning software, you want to have the data prepared, you want to load the data and push go and set it up and it creates a predictive model. That's the fun rocket science part, right? That's that's why I got in the field into the first place. Right now, everyone's focused on that. It's like being more excited about the rocket science than the actual launch of the rocket. Like, <laughs> right. hey, this this science is so cool. Yeah, we could launch the rocket next week or next year. It doesn't really matter. Who cares? The science is so cool, right? And from our nerd, from our nerdy perspective, there's a, <laughs> there's some truth to that, and that's what got me into it uh, in in the first place. So for the data scientist who wants to do that number crunching, the how-to, the technical how-to, that's a different book you need to also read. But the organization as a whole, including both business stakeholders and the quants, the data scientists, also need to learn and get on the same page with the organizational practice. Because the thing that most business stakeholders haven't quite come to understand is that to run a machine learning project takes a very particular specialized um, project management practice in comparison to other kinds of projects. You have to get involved in semi-technical understanding of what this project's going to do, what's going to be predicted, for example, which customer's going to buy or which one's going to cancel, and how is that prediction going to be used, which involves, for example, targeting a marketing campaign or a customer retention campaign. It's it's much more widely applicable than just marketing, and that, that, that... that's important. That's why everybody's so excited about this technology. It's general applicability. Yeah, but and you do talk throughout the book about giving examples of how it affects marketing, advertising, but also operations and logistics and all kinds of things that are where you have some successful case studies. So let's drill down just a bit on some definitions here. So the book is the AI playbook, but it primarily focuses on machine learning. So what what, what were you doing with the the title here? Well, oftentimes when people say AI, they just mean machine learning. And if they're talking concretely about a real specific technology, they are talking about machine learning because that's what makes up for this concept of AI. But AI more generally is kind of a brand. It's an idea. It's definitely a science fiction concept uh, as you opened with the 2001 soundbite there. It's almost like an umbrella term. It very much is, and it can refer to a lot of different technologies, but it's broad. So it doesn't necessarily allude to any particular technology or any particular use case. Whereas machine learning, which is what people are usually alluding to when they say AI, uh-huh, uh-huh. and um, and is how most people know of the concept of AI, um, machine learning is very well defined. It's learning from data to make predictions on a per-individual basis. For example, for targeting marketing, that'd be per customer, um, in order to drive better decisions. So do you die a little bit inside when people use the word artificial intelligence instead of machine learning? You know, I die just a teeny little bit inside, but what what really kills me though isn't when they just sort of if as long as they're talking about something concrete, they can call it whatever the rose by any other name. The thing that really kills me is that the 
Um, business world's gotten a little carried away with the whole AI concept and brand in its realization from the science fiction concept. <laughs> right. um, and and the advent of generative AI, which I think is incredible. And I, I was in a, a natural language processing research group during my PhD for six years. I never thought I would see in my lifetime what these things can do. But well, wait, world, explain what generative AI is. Right. So generative AI is when, you know, uh, like chat GPT, a large language model that can that can correspond with you or can write something from scratch, can or write make a, first a picture. Draft. Right. Or right. Or image generation. Now they're also working on videos. So the problem is that it creates these things. You can't really trust or rely. It's, 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 it's trained to be very human like, but that doesn't mean that it's also trained for higher level human um, goals. It's like being correct or always knowing the right answer, mm-hmm. right? That's a different, that's a new research project they're still working on, but the effect of it is incredible. The value is clearly there. So long as you're clear that you have to proofread everything that it manually, you have to have a human in the loop every for every output, which is not true for all machine learning use cases. But but all of that stuff is still using the same core technology. Instead of predicting what which customer is going to buy, it's predicting what word would come next in this paragraph, and it just does that repeatedly. So it's the same core technology of learning from data. It's just a, a more advanced version and using a lot more data. Whereas with sort of business use cases of machine learning, you don't have to predict with incredible high accuracy and precision and confidence. In fact, you can't generally have crystal ball level prediction because we can't expect computers to be clairvoyant for predicting the outcome or behavior of humans who's going to click buy, lie, or die, commit an act of fraud, cancel their subscription, turn out to be a bad debtor. You can't expect computers to be clairvoyant any more than, than humans. But by predicting better than guessing you drive these large-scale decisions, and no matter how advanced the technology is going to be. It's never going to be a magic crystal ball, but it's it's extremely valuable for, for targeting uh, marketing campaigns and many other large-scale operational processes. Well, let me quote from the foreword written by Morgan Vodder, who is uh, currently with Unilever. She used to be at uh, Caterpillar and at Accenture, and she's a Forbes Magazine 40 Under 40 honoree. She wrote, without common understanding between business stakeholders and data leaders on the best practices for delivering data and analytics transformations, many projects fail to take off, struggle to scale, or ultimately don't deliver on the business outcomes. The industry needs a framework to better leverage machine learning for business results. This book introduces BizML, which brings forward the best practices in a succinct and actionable way. Not only is the book a timely and much-needed addition to the industry, it's also powerful in bringing AI down to earth issuing the hype and making it tangible for all readers. This book is the driver's manual for machine learning. Every business and analytics professional should read it. Now, let's talk about Eric Siegel some more. You write in the book that you have pivoted in your career from machine learning cheerleader to a wary disciplinarian. Explain that transition. Sure. I mean, look, <laughs> I, I've been an independent consultant for 20 years. I've been in the field for 30. And when I started as a consultant 20 years ago, uh, I, I would walk into office and be like, hey, you, you want to use machine learning? It's, it's going to really help your business. And I would get these blank stares 
Like, what are you talking about? At the time, machine learning was only used in an academic or research and development. So I started calling it predictive analytics. They were calling it data mining, and I didn't like that term. But predictive analytics was an up-and-coming term. That's the title of my first book, and it was the title of my conference series for a while, which is now Machine Learning Week. Because now machine learning has become a term, a term of art in the business world, not just in, in academics. In any case, when I started out, what, what was needed was evangelizing. And being excited, hey, look, this stuff is really cool, and it delivers value in these ways, or it could. Here's how we should use it. It's not just amazing science. It's also potentially extremely value, valuable. Go figure. Prediction's valuable. You know, what, what, it's the holy grail for targeting all large-scale operations. Great. So I, that's, you know, that's what I taught myself to do, is give that little pep speech cheerlead that I just did a second ago. Um, however, at this point, it, there's too much hype. And that's, even if you sort of put aside the real... AI hype, where you're talking about machines becoming as all capable on a human level, you know, an equivalent to humans, and you could plug them in and unleash them just the same as hiring a new human employee. That's a lot of hype. But even if you put that level of hype aside, um, even when you have a pretty concrete use case, like, hey, I'm going to target this particular marketing campaign, it turns out you're still there's this still kind of this cultural effect where we're focused so much on that exciting core rocket science part rather than its deployment, the actual implementation and change to an existing operation. So I'm kind of, it's been some number of decades and I've kind of gotten tired of the sort of just making excitement and seeing it fail so frequently. There's lots of great leaders. There's the rare individual leader at, at, at all sorts of Fortune 500s. There's big tech, they really got it down pretty well. Finan- lots of parts of financial services, credit scoring and stuff, they're doing well. Large marketing efforts often do it well. But new projects and newcomers and companies that haven't quite harnessed it yet are just routinely struggling to catch up. And they're, they're not getting this last piece right. They Maybe they get a good data scientist and they do the number crunching well. But I, I'm kind of tired of them. Like, let's stop just hyping it up so people buy it. Let's actually in, in, you know, put that framework in place right? That paradigm, that practice that I call BizML, um, the titular playbook of, of the AI playbook, um, out there so there's a common understanding that, hey, this isn't just about technology, it's a business change and it's a business practice. And let's start seeing value realized much more frequently than it is today. Was an alternate title for your book, Stop the Madness? Yeah, uh, that's a good <laughs> idea. Actually, is it too late to change the title of the book? <laughs> No, uh, as they used to say in the army, that round is downrange. So sorry, but uh, I'm available for any other ideas. You know, as long as I don't have to implement next. them. Let me just quote from a couple things that just got me all fired up, and I think we'll probably send you further into a rage. But I just want to get this out of the way. You talk that the buzz has gone too far about machine learning, and that the onslaught of excitement feeds a common misperception that derails many machine learning projects. And another great line is, don't let the glare emanating from this glitzy technology obscure the simplicity of its fundamental duty. Another great line, the machine learning industry has bitten forbidden fruit. It has chosen to promote itself as AI, an ill-defined umbrella term that includes machine learning within its malleable scope. And you talk about how... uh, you know, the world, like you talked about, the, the world under, misunderstands machine learning. It tends to overstate and fetishize rather than pitching the technology's 
concrete value. But then one other thing I want to ask you about, though, you, you talk about how the machine learning industry had better tone this down or we're all going to pay dearly. Please explain. What, what's, what's the danger here? Well, the danger is an AI winter. And, you know, we, we, we go through these cycles. The, the term AI is nothing if not anthropomorphic. So, you know, when you use the word intelligence, that's a term that's particular to humans and our particular capabilities. So when you say, hey, I'm going to make a machine that is, quote unquote, intelligent, which is a very fuzzy um, subjective term, you can't get away from humans. And just, you do this dance trying to find a definition. Nobody can agree. And there's no definition that holds the uh, spirit intended by the term of AI without going full hog into what everyone calls artificial general intelligence, um, which is a computer that can do anything a human can do, essentially, or at least any intellectual task, they say, to differentiate it from robotics. Like but our still, friend Hal. Right, it can run. It could right. How certainly applies, right? And I love artificial intelligence in a science fiction context and, and in a philosophical one. But what happens with these AI winters, and there could be more intermediate disillusionment. But what happens is sort of the, the hype just goes out of control, and then when the value is not realized, you throw the baby out with the bathwater because it gets stigmatized. Everyone, you know, you go through these phases. There are decades where you can't admit you're in the so-called field of AI because it's, everyone's like, oh, that's a bunch of baloney. Now, it's not – obviously, these large language models are amazing and do have value, but – the implication in the hype is that they're gonna that, that we're very much headed towards human level capabilities, and that's a false promise. And it's like the opposite of good expectation management. And when there's the blowback and the disillusionment, what I mean by baby with the bathwater is that the true value of targeting operations such as marketing with machine learning, and that, by the way, is the fundamental duty. You know, you quoted, "Don't let the glare emanating from this glitzy technology distract." That's the fundamental duty: is a prediction. For each individual that directly informs and improves these large-scale operations. Business is a numbers game. We make lots of mistakes. You know, mass mail is mostly considered junk mail and put in the recycling bin. But can you tip the numbers game in your favor? Can you tip the odds a bit? By, and indeed you can by incorporating quantitative prediction. And just a little bit pays off bigly. <laughs> Hugely. Huge bigly. <laughs> Let me quote from page 18 and uh, 19 here. I want to ask you to explain two things. You write, machine learning is the most important general purpose technology of our era, as Harvard Business Review astutely put it. On the other hand, it's the most misunderstood and mismanaged. Misfire after misfire, many machine learning projects go amiss in their mission to deploy their models destined only to collect dust. Capitalizing on this technology is critical, but it's notoriously difficult to launch. Many machine learning projects never progress beyond the modeling, the number crunching phase. Industry surveys repeatedly show that most new machine learning initiatives don't make it to deployment where the value would be realized. Hype contributes to this problem. Machine learning is mythologized, misconstrued as intelligent when it is not it's also mismeasured as highly accurate, <laughs> even when that notion is irrelevant and misleading. For now, these adulations largely drown out the words of consternation, but those words are bound to increase in volume. So can you talk about how the technology is neither as intelligent as people think it is, nor as accurate? 
I yes. I mean, those are two diff- very different. So the accurate thing is a very sort of concrete, and I even have a Scientific American blog article about this. Everyone's like, it's accurate, it's accurate. But that implies that it can tell the difference between positive and negative cases, the kinds of things you want to predict. Will they click by, lie or die, or commit an act of fraud? These outcomes or behaviors are you can say, hey, look, the these this pocket of customers is three times more likely than average to buy, but they may still as a whole, only have a 3% chance of buying. Knowing for sure and having that level of confidence that's implied by high accuracy for both positive and negative cases is completely misleading. And and readers, even technical readers, kind of see that misrepresentation of the performance. And unless they really dig into the details, they just walk away thinking, hey, this thing is right most of the time. But you have to think it through. Does that mean it's right most of the time for both positive and negative cases? If it is, it's like a magic crystal ball. It's it's infeasible, and that's just over hype again. That's just a way in which expectations are mismanaged. Yeah, and we may talk a little bit more about that in a minute because there's some very funny uh, news article headlines that you included, in the yeah. book, which are very uh, illustrative. But the, as far as the intelligent, again, I guess we sort of touched on it's not intelligent in a in a way that threatens people. Well, intelligence, again, is so such a subjective word. But when you start saying, hey, a machine is somewhat intelligent, is becoming more intelligent, it will be as intelligent as a human, it's a mythology. I mean, you're, you're sort of ascribing what it means to be human uh, to a machine, and that's just, that's just super overblown. <laughs> right. There's no reason to think that we're headed that direction. I mean, sure. It, it can do amazing things. And it seems to be working with human-like concepts to some degree when you interact with these chatbots like uh, ChatGPT and a whole bunch of other competitors, which is incredible. But there's such a huge difference between what it's doing now and just operating in the way a, a well-performing human would. Uh, we're just taking way too much for granted about our own capabilities and we're just blowing the hype out of the water with regard to this whole AI concept. Right. And I don't want to keep beating that dead horse, although I don't think it's dead, but feel free to uh, as we continue the conversation here. And I don't mean any harm to horses at all uh, in that (laughs) comment. My wife is a horse person. If she heard me saying that, I'd probably get in a lot of trouble. I mean, my wife is not a horse. She she has horses. I, I'm sorry. I feel like I need to be really technically accurate. But the horse is already dead, right? <laughs> there you go. Not hers. Yeah. Those horses get better uh, food and health care than I do. Uh, they're, they're, no, they're doing, they're doing really, really well. So let's jump ahead. One other thing I want to ask you about, but kind of back to, you know, why do I need to bother with this sort of thing? And I just wanted to touch on this before we walk through the the steps, the the six steps. And that is page 43, right? Many business professionals say something like, I don't need to understand the inner, inner workings of an engine to drive a car. I delegate all that technical stuff to the experts. Tinkering under the hood is someone else's responsibility, which is kind of the point of the book here. You you, you actually do need just a, to have a, a basic understanding, like even this podcast host has now, having read the book. And you also talk about how reframing machine learning will help correct the common misconception that business professionals need not become acquainted with any of its particulars. Many mentally tuck machine learning into a black box that only data scientists penetrate. Analytics vendors love this box, (laughs) since that which is mysterious seems powerful. And Eric, it kind of reminds me of the SEO (laughs) <laughs> from a few years back. Mm. But I think that, do, do you get 
a lot of pushback from business executives, not the data scientists who say, I don't, I don't need to deal with that because I hear that on other things. Like, I don't need to deal with marketing. I don't need to be involved with sales, things like that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's what we're kind of up against. That's that's where we need to say, hey, wait a minute. Look, you. The, it's not just bad news that you need to learn a little bit. It's actually good news because this stuff is so much more accessible and interesting than like, let's say, high school algebra because it really matters. It's so relevant. It's so It's actually really cool and sophisticated and it's not the rocket science part. What you need to learn, semi-technical stuff, what's being predicted, how well... So you need to put numbers on that in some way. And then what's done about it. So target marketing to these particular ones predicted to do this way or these ones that are predicted to cancel their subscription. So it's what's predicted, how well, and what's done about it. And it's so, so learning that level is it's it's like driver's ed, not auto mechanics school, right? Auto yes. mechanics school could be valuable to everyone, but it's probably not pertinent unless you're going to be an auto mechanic, whereas driver's ed pertains to everybody. It, you might not need to pop the hood to drive a car, but the expertise is you need to know friction and momentum and the rules of the road and expectations of other drivers and theirs of yours. That's a lot of expertise anyone needs to drive a car. Same thing applies for driving a machine learning project. I'm wondering if guys like my friend, my drinking buddy, if if they would, do you think a lot of data scientists would like for more of their colleagues to read a book like this? Oh my God! Yes, they're dying for it. I mean, that, <laughs> no, no. The day that's what I I I I even say that early in like in the FAQ opening, sort of the optional FAQ. I'm like, if you're a data scientist, here's why you should read the book. You probably didn't really think this through. This matters. These are these are a couple chapters you should read in detail. But other than that skim this book, give it a good skim, and then give it to your boss. Yeah, or buy a box of them and lead like a little uh, lunch and learn or, or a book club or something. Because I like it's like my buddy, he he wanted to read these kinds of books so that he knew how to better deal with the civilians who were wasting so much time and money on projects he was doing. So let's mm -hmm. move on. Let's talk the quickly through the six steps. And let me ask a, a question or two about each. And this is the BizML a framework that you have. And the first is value. Establish the deployment goal. And in the book, you talk about some clients you had in the past, maybe in the earlier years of your career, where you did not have this deployment goal. And, and another one where you did. Uh, one was a dating mm -hmm. site and the other one was a, an educational site targeting uh, like high school people. Can, mm -hmm. can you briefly touch on those two stories so people can understand what the deployment goal is and, and how one had it and one didn't? Well, the deployment goal is the is two of those three things that, that I mentioned you need to know, get involved with. What's predicted, how well, and what's done about it. It's the first and last of those. What's predicted and what's done about it, that defines the use case, the application of machine learning, how it's going to deliver value. Um, so, for example, predict which customers... At, most at risk of canceling their paid subscription. And then what's done about it is a marketing campaign to, to provide a retention incentive to try to keep those people most at risk uh, to prevent them preclude. And, and hopefully they won't cancel and you'll keep them on at least for a, a good duration longer. So you'll get more value. It's worth investing the uh, retention discount, but you can't afford to give that discount to your entire customer base. So by definition, the only recourse is to target effectively by predicting who's going to cancel and putting those odds on it. So that um, the example I cover in the book, I, I had 
a pretty big online dating site as a client. And, and I was like, hey, you want to do this? And they're like, that sounds like a good idea. And what I was doing was the mistake the whole book is trying to remedy. And this, this was, because this was, uh, I don't know, 18 years ago or something. And I hadn't learned my lesson yet. So I sold the project, even though I was the technical expert. And in so doing, what I didn't do was really get them on board with what deployment would involve. It involves a new marketing campaign. They're going to need to take this, this list that the model generates of, essentially, of paying customers most at risk of canceling, and now they're going to have to create a new marketing initiative. So unlike targeting marketing, where you might use machine learning to better target or more effectively target existing campaigns or existing initiatives, typically the other main marketing application is what's called churn modeling, predicting who's canceling mm -hmm. in order to target the retention. But that involves a whole new campaign poten potentially or typically that's not already been done. So the by the I did the number crunching, you know, I put it in a PowerPoint and I've got a quote in the book. It says, uh, PowerPoints where models go to die, right? So I put it in a PowerPoint. I'm like, look how great this is and look how much value it could generate for you if you now used it to target a retention campaign. They were like, you want me to do something? You know, they're, they're like, like we, I thought we were just paying you the number crunch. And you know, so there was that disconnect. It's like the epitome. Right, right. Uh, it's this is the epitome of the syndrome that just happens over and over. So I had to dig into my own history and tell that that humbling story, right? Whereas what you mentioned, well, well, the, let me interject. It reminds me yeah. of a company who says to their marketing people, more or less, go do marketing activity. And even the marketing people might be saying, well, to what end? <laughs> right. What's the connection here with maybe selling something? Sure. I mean, so I hadn't, I sold them on, on, on the project. So I get paid as a consultant, right? I didn't have a lot. Uh, and, and the industry at large is kind of like this. I didn't have a lot of incentive to evolve personally as a data scientist and as a consultant because I got paid for my time. But the company didn't get value from it because they didn't deploy. They didn't act on it. They didn't right, inter right. integrate what, what the model would do. And that's a joke where you say, wait, we got to go do something, <laughs> which we're going to yeah, talk about like, in a minute. Want, wait, wait, you want, wait, you want me to do what? <laughs> All right. So the other one, you, you, they called you in, but they had an idea of what they were trying to accomplish, right? Yeah. So I didn't, I, I kind of learned my lesson the easy way in this case, right? I didn't have to be that. I didn't have to not only sell them on the number crunching, but go further and be like, hey, look, now I, I'm gonna, you're going to hire me for this number crunching, and you better also be planning to change operations in some way to actually implement it. In this case, the, it was for targeting ads, mm -hmm. so, so not exactly marketing. Um, for a, a website that's used by one, one in three uh, college-bound high school students to find out about grants and scholarships, but in the meanwhile, while they're using the product, the the website, they're going to see a bunch of ads that are targeted. And they already had a way to target ads, but not really personalize them by the particulars of the user. So that's where machine learning comes in, because it's going to look at the profile the and behavior of that particular individual user and try to decide, hey, which of these ads are they most likely to be responsive to? But when that client contacted me, the, the manager who reached out already had hatched the basic idea and mm -hmm. knew darn well that this wasn't just about number crunching. It was about a change to the logic in their operational website system that was serving ads and choosing which ad to serve. And that the whole point 
was that after I generated predictive models that make a better choice than their existing legacy system, that then they would have to change that real-time website system to actually deploy and act on those predictions. So when they came to me, that business problem sort of had already been solved for me. Right. And they said something like, look, if <laughs> every time somebody clicks on this particular ad, we make another $12. So can, can you put this in front, help us put this in front of more people that are more likely to do that? And I think Presto Changeo was like another million and a half dollars they had, if I, if I recall that right. Yeah, it amounted, I, I think it amounted to a million dollars almost like, you know, every 1.3 years or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's jump ahead to the second, which is target and establish the prediction goal. And on page 67, you write, it turns out that it's easy to mess this up. <laughs> Failing to align the prediction goal with how predictions will be operationalized. Many projects get it wrong. They neglect to scrupulously flesh out the prediction goal before jumping into the analysis. This is a deadly error, usually resulting in a model that's embalmed rather than embraced. So explain what a prediction goal is and uh, perhaps what a prediction goal is not. Well, the prediction goal is what's the model that machine learning creates from data actually going to predict. So as I mentioned, you need to get involved with what's predicted and what's done about it. It's the first of those two, and you need to get a lot more specific than just being like, I'm going to predict who's going to buy if I market to them. I'm going to predict which customer is going to cancel. You have to get very specific. So that's that's sort of a deadly error. It's like, oh, well, you know, we're predicting customer churn or customer attrition, who's at risk of departure or cancellation, and then we're going to use that to do a retention campaign. But without getting into the particulars from a business perspective and the business stakeholder getting involved in them, the project's not well enough defined. It's not well defined enough in great enough detail to actually achieve value and to be viable for deployment for that, in this particular example, for a new marketing campaign. You have to get much more specific. So you have to be like, okay, which of all of our current customers who've been around for at least three months are going to decrease their usage by at least 80% in the next uh, three and a half months? You have to pick a time window for whatever the outcome might be. Mm -hmm. And not increase their spend in some other channel because that doesn't really count as cancellation. We still have them as a customer, you know, and, and, and. It's a long run-on sentence. And it, it's, a, it's, it's typically a yes-no question, which is called binary prediction. And it's going to be kind of long. All those qualifiers and caveats are business relevant. It's not rocket science. It's kind of quasi-technical because you got to get into all those details, but they're all informed by pragmatic business side considerations about how you're planning and why to target some customers with some particular retention campaign. So that's the level of detail. And, and that particular yes-no prediction goal in all its gory detail once it's been fleshed out, then the data scientist is in a position to go do number crunching that's in alignment with what the business needs. Because the number, what I keep calling number crunching, that means using machine learning software to create the model that predicts, right? But to use that software, it has to be set up to to pursue exactly that one precise, well-defined prediction goal. And in fact, FYI, the way they do that isn't really in the use of the machine learning software, but it's how they set up the data that they then feed into it. Yes. So the, way you, the way you manifest the particular prediction goal is in that data preparation part, and then you're giving it to the, the machine learning software. Yeah, it, back to my, my friend, I think he... I got the impression he spends a lot of time asking the question why and or 
what are you trying to accomplish? Because <laughs> they were just yeah. constantly asking him for information. It's like, okay, but w- what are you going to do? It also brings to mind a book that was on the show recently called uh, Decisions Over Decimals, written by uh, uh, Columbia University Press, uh, some professors there. One of them was Oded Netzer. That's who I interviewed. I don't know if he was a mm-hmm. professor when you were there, but they <laughs> they were saying like, don't don't get into all these decimals until you know what decision it is mm-hmm. you need to make. And they said that they wrote the mm-hmm. book because they hate meetings. <laughs> okay, yeah. so, so much time was being being wasted. Well, let's jump to the third one quickly here, which is uh, establish the evaluation metrics. And I want to quote from page eighty-two. We, you, you started to touch on this, but I really want to hammer this home because I found it so darn interesting. You write headlines about machine learning promise godlike predictive power. Here are four examples, and then I'm going to ask you what the problem is with these. But uh, the first one's Newsweek. AI can tell if you're gay. Artificial intelligence predicts sexuality from one photo with startling accuracy. Or the spectator wrote, linguistic analysis can accurately predict psychosis. I think my wife figured that out a long time ago about me. But (laughs) then the the Daily Mail, AI-powered scams can identify people at risk of a fatal heart attack almost a decade in advance. With 90% accuracy. And then the next web wrote, this scary AI has learned how to pick out criminals by their faces, which is why I don't go outside much anymore. But what's the problem with all four of those really interesting clickbaity headlines? Yep. I mean, so that first one you mentioned, it's the so-called electronic gaydar. Gaydar, you know, is an urban myth. Um, You know, again... When you're trying to predict consequential aspects or outcome or behavior of humans, right? We, unless you're a magic crystal ball or have clairvoyance, neither of which actually exist, you can't, you can't be getting it right for both positive and negative cases, whatever the yes no prediction goal is. A great majority of the time, you're you're gonna. Well, no, that was that was ninety three percent, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the so in that particular, and this is in alignment with a lot of prediction goals, including those for for business who's going to click buy, lie, or die. Whether you're gay, whether you're going to uh, become psychotic, whether you're going to have a heart attack. Oftentimes, the thing you're trying to predict, the positive versus negative case, is tends to be more rare, and it, that makes sense because the thing you're trying to predict is sort of the more important, the customer who is going to buy, the one who is going to cancel, right? The 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 mental health care patient who is going to become psychotic. It really matters. These are the important cases, and they also tend to happen a lot less than half the time. So when something only happens, you know, 0.01% of the time of transactions are fraudulent. So you can get a model that's 99.9% accurate by always saying no. It, <laughs> right. it's, the, it's like Nancy Reagan, just say no. Right, right. And if the model just says, no, 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 it's got this 99.9% accuracy or 93% accuracy, in the, depending on, on the data selection in the case of a sexual orientation, whatever it is, if it just guesses the majority case, it's going to be, quote unquote, highly accurate. Whereas what it turns out, most of these cases are not talking about accuracy. They're talking about something called area under the receiver operating characteristic curve. Would you love? Would you love me to explain what that is? Well, yeah. it. Oh, okay. Sweet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Ready? Fasten your seatbelts. It's 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 the it's it's how often you're right when you're given two cases and one's positive, one's negative, but you don't know which is which and you guess correctly. So it kind of evens the playing field almost as if it's a 50-50 
space. But the reality is when you're using the model, you don't get served up those contrived scenarios where you've preordained a match of a positive and negative. You're just given a whole population of cases, the vast majority of which are negative rather than positive cases, depending how you define negative and positive for whatever you're trying to predict. And therefore, it's really hard to get positive cases without a whole bunch of false positives. Mm -hmm. That's just the nature of the way this works. So when, when when you convey tacitly that the thing's usually right for both positive and negative cases, you're far overblowing how well it predicts. Right. And one of the other concepts that I I understood much better from this section was how imperfect prediction gets a bad rap in in your world. In other words, I Mm -hmm. got the sense a lot of people think predictions have to be perfect. Actually, they just have to be better, just a little better. Yeah. Better, better, even better, just better than guessing. Or And yeah. it often, it generally is significantly better than guessing, depending on how you measure that performance. But yeah, that, that, that disconnect is the thing, right? That's just part of the syndrome. The business stakeholder, when, it comes, when push comes to shove, and that model, the predictive model is delivered by the data scientist, then the stakeholders say, well, yeah, but that thing is really not predicting nearly as well as a magic crystal ball. It's a sort of, you know, it's not... The word accuracy is is a little bit of a, of a distraction, but mm-hmm. it's not highly confident most of the time um, it, it compared to a magic crystal ball. And then and then what they're lacking is an understanding of how it's still valuable. And they might understand abstractly, well, you know, predicting better and guessing can be valuable, but they don't know concretely how you turn that into specific numbers. And that's the point of step three that you're asking about here, which is establish establish the metrics because you got to get both sides on the same page. This is, again, this is a business practice that involves collaboration with the with the business stakeholder and the data scientist and get on the same page of exactly what are those metrics that pertain and are and and show a feasible predictive performance that's still valuable and it's a concrete number. Get them on that page during this early step. We're only at step three out of six. So this is still the pre-production, right? We're just trying to get on the same page. And that's really important so that at the end, that we understand the value and that indeed this model is ready to, to be to to authorize deployment. Yes, it brings to mind the idea of measure twice, cut once, because it just sounds like there's a mm. a lot of money and time just being hemorrhaged mm. in your oh, world yeah. on this Big stuff. Time. Let's jump to the fourth one, fuel. Uh, I learned so much here about how important this is and what some of the misperceptions are. I want to quote from page 113. Data trumps the algorithm. Machine learning algorithms may be fun, sexy part. Everyone wants to crash that party, but improving the data is where you usually get the greatest payoff. Data is the source of predictive power. It encodes the prior happenings of the world, the experience from which machine learning will learn. Machine learning software is only as good as the data you give it. And yet, Eric Siegel, why is data prep so commonly underestimated, underplayed, and undervalued. You know, data prep's just not as sexy as the core rocket science, the, the science, the technology that learns from, from data. But <laughs> you can't learn from data without having the right data in the first place. And, and so that's the, see, this is the, um, the tendency of data scientists. All they want to do is, is, is start using machine learning software. They're going to load the data, push go. It's going to learn from the data. It's going to make a predictive model, which is the which which is such an interesting, amazing science because it does work. It succeeds in finding patterns that hold over new, 
unseen cases, novel cases, unique cases that have never before been seen. So in that sense, it's actually successfully learning. But learning from what? From data that needs to, as as I mentioned, it, that data represents exactly specifically what it is you're trying to predict. It needs to be set up accordingly. So if data scientists have that tendency, it's only exacerbated by by all the books and not all, but most <laughs> well, educators. Books, yeah, you take them to books, task. Yeah, and educators who start day one, it's like, all right, let's load the data as if the data magically already prepared itself. But that skips over all those pre production steps of of planning backward planning exactly how you're going to deploy and therefore what needs to be predicted and therefore what the training data needs to look like and then taking the pains of manipulating the data in whatever tables you have them in now to put them in the right form and format that's necessary. So those those pains are unavoidable if you're going to have a machine learning project that successfully captures value in deployment. Right. It reminds me of saying to one's spouse or somebody, go to the grocery store and buy some ingredients. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. Kind of, kind of, uh, yeah. yeah. Can you can you can you give me anything? Else? I'm gonna but, make I'm gonna make something. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, this brings to mind a, a book that was on the show uh, recently. Brian Kurtz, his book about direct marketing. Uh, his book is called Over Deliver, and he talked about how in the direct marketing world, the the great copywriters and all the direct marketing people say, "Don't just give me the list." Tell me where you got the list. What actions have this the people on the list taken? <laughs> they, they don't take anything for granted. And it, it just brought to mind the same idea of don't just say, okay, here's – or it's like a, a marketing person goes to a company and they say, uh, do you have an email list? Yeah, sure. Here it is. Oh, great. Well, <laughs> how did you get these email addresses? What, 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 what have they done? It's not just because they're, you're handed them. It doesn't mean it's good. One other concept, though, that was very interesting to me is where you say the data sources that you're repurposing weren't originally collected with machine learning in mind. That sounded like a real sure. problem. In other words, are people handed the data, but it was never – it was collected for some other reason? Yeah, of course it was. I mean, in general, like, remember when we called it big data? So the whole big data movement and excitement is the, is the thing about data isn't how it's magnitude, because that's doubling, you know, it's, it's growing so fast, and it's always so much bigger than it was yesterday. But what's big is the excitement. And the reason we should be excited about data is because it's predictive, it records the collective experience of an organization from which it's possible to learn how to predict. And that's the most actionable thing you can get from data analysis. So that's exciting. But where did that data come from? It's a side effect of conducting business as usual. It's the logs. It's the transactions that took place. And then from that, we have the outcomes and behaviors that you know which customer canceled. You know which customers responded or purchased. You know which or made a purchase. You know which transaction turned out to be fraudulent. So time has told, and that's the experience from which to learn. Those are the cases where you don't have to make that, that's when you put the data together, it's called training data, and it already has those outcomes because history has spoken. We don't have to predict for those cases. Rather, they're, case, they're examples from which to learn. So we got to get that data together in the right form and format, but it wasn't created for that in the first place. Now, this is not a scientific challenge for, for the most part. It's sort of a, a, a management, a, sort of a technical database management issue, it takes database programming, data manipulation, because there is a certain... Form and for the form and format, by the way, is quite straightforward. Basically, you need one, you need an ex a lot of examples, both positive and negative. Each of them are labeled 
often because history has already told you how it turned out. In some cases, it's manually labeled, such as, you know, is there a cat or a dog in this photograph? Either way, you need examples from which to learn, both positive and negative. It's, that, that's what it comes down to. But the data that you have right now might be spread a bunch of, across a bunch of different systems and a bunch of different tables. So it's just a sad fact of life that to leverage this sort of organically grown um, resource known as data or big data or whatever you want to call it, you do have to manipulate it and sort of re rejigger it. Yes, and thank you for pronouncing it data. I pronounce it data. And apparently both uh, pronunciations are correct. Yeah, they are correct, but don't say data is plural. Data are important. I hate that. It's so stuffy. It's data is important. Well, Every British author I interview, they say, well, you know, we pronounce it data. So, <laughs> Dr. Siegel, I appreciate you using it, uh, pronouncing it in a way that, that those uh, listeners will understand. So, let's go to the algorithm, okay? And this is the really sexy part. I'm sexy and I know it. So, machine learning algorithms constitute the single most powerful, generally applicable technology. They're also the coolest. By learning from data, they derive models that work. The models are capable of making predictions for new, unique cases. When training a model, the computer is essentially programming itself. Now listen up, folks. If you've excitedly jumped right to this chapter, then you're in good company. And yet you're exactly the person for whom I wrote the chapters that come before this one. You need to pay your business side dues before you get to revel in this sexy rocket science. We all must fight our natural propensity to exalt the advanced tech in lieu of sufficiently obsessing over its launch and in lieu of executing the preceding four project steps needed to make that launch possible. So, Algorithms. We're not going to go through all the different types. They're all listed. They're all included here uh, in the in this chapter. But I want to jump to this. We explain the following. You write. This is page uh, one forty five. Understanding a model is rarely straightforward, and whether it's important to do so makes for an unresolved religious debate across the machine learning industry. Please explain. Yes. So what's learned from data is often in the form of pretty straightforward if-then rules. So like if the customer lives in this area and has these demographic characteristics and, 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 then they're five times more likely than average to, to cancel as a subscriber or to buy this. So it, it often a rule, uh, I'm sorry, a model is a bunch of rules like that, typically a, a decision tree, but sometimes they're much more arcane and opaque soup of mathematical formula, most notably neural networks are like that. And the religious debate pertains to sort of whether you should trust a model and whether you need to understand it in order to trust it. There is a parallel issue, though, which relates to ethics, which is should you understand a model to make sure that it's not doing something untoward, that it's not treating people of different protected classes differently? That's a different matter. But the religious debate to which I'm alluding is that a lot of people, they tend to not be data scientists, so they tend to be more on the business stakeholder, say, hey, if I don't understand this model, how can I trust it? But the fact is, to the degree that you only care about the value and exactly how well it predicts, that's just in the numbers. You're just trying it out, seeing how good the model is, and there's always a held aside set of examples used to evaluate, called the test set, that's used, that, that it didn't 
they're quarantined. It doesn't get to use them when it's learning from data. They're hidden. So there's no way it could have memorized any particulars of that particular set of test data. And then that serves as a, a means to objectively estimate how well the model performs in general, outside of just the examples that it was given that it learned over. So that's, that's just, when it comes to that, it's just statistics. How often is it right and wrong over this large number of examples? What's the margin of error? Do you need to understand how it did it? Well, if it, 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 all you're doing is observing its, its behavior, right? We look, the same thing as the human body or the brain. You sort of see how well it does certain things, and that's a good estimate of how that same thing will perform over a different population of humans or future humans, right? We're tr so to a certain degree, there are places where it's, it is okay, to, to, at least technically, to treat the model like a black box, Right, but does sometimes, I guess rather more often than not, do people say, well, I don't understand why, it may be predicting correctly, but I don't understand why people are doing that? Sure. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, I, I, I cover one example where it's uh, students who had uh, indicated certain interest in military turned out to be more receptive to an ad for the art institute or some art uh, higher education institute. So why would military people or people military interest be more interested in an art institute. And you can interpret that a million different ways, right? You could be like, oh, well, maybe they're more well-rounded families. You know, their military families are more well-rounded. I don't know. Or maybe uh, it's just the people who have filled out more of their profile are more likely to have filled out military and also more likely to respond to ads in general, right? There's all the 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 kind of causal story, the causality that would underline the answer to the question why and tells that story, it, you know, that's a different type of scientific. I mean, to right. to, to ascertain they're, they're the clicking why, on it. they're they're doing it. Yeah, they're doing it, and ultimately for targeting ads, that's what you care about. If you if you're if you're studying human behavior and you want to understand the why, that's different, and it requires a different kind of data collection. Right. But one of the big points here is we're leveraging the data you already have. You don't have to conduct a whole new. Uh, in most of these kinds of machine learning projects and big data in general, you don't have to conduct a whole new data collection effort. We're we're leveraging this ultimate resource that we autom sort of automatically. God as a side effect of conducting business. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Siegel. What do you call a formula that can predict Al Gore's dance moves? An algorithm. I didn't make up that joke. These algorithms, uh, they are the digital equivalent of AR-15s. They ought to be banned. They really ought to be banned. <laughs> that I haven't heard before. Not artificial intelligence, artificial insanity. So related to that, that first one, that was Al Gore in the first one. He was in both the of them. Oh, was it? Yeah, Official I'm quoting him out of context, of course, because it's funny. But um, yes. <laughs> he, in the algorithm part, he was actually talking about uh, certain social media platforms. Ah. So related to that, I would like you to explain the following from page 157. The way media has come to use the word algorithm tells us a lot about machine learning's elevated status. Right. Well, that's because the media now uses the word algorithm to mean machine learning, whereas algorithm just means anything a computer can do, right? It, it means a, a well-defined process. It, you know, the informal definition is any kind of well-defined process that is concretely enough, def defined well enough that you could program a computer to do it. That's what an algorithm is. Um, but that means anything you're doing with a computer, any problem you're solving, all a million different things, right? The word algorithm pertains. But nowadays, people use algorithm to refer specifically to machine learning, and that's 
that's because machine learning's uh, so hot. <laughs> that's right. You're right. When a field gets famous, it dominates more than its fair share of vocabulary. Yeah, like crypto. People say <laughs> right. cryptography as a field is about encoding and securing all sorts of transactions and messages. Yes. It's not just about cryptocurrency. But yes. when people say crypto, they mean cryptocurrency. Right, right, right. So the last one is uh, the launch stage, deploy the model. And I just was wondering, of, of all six stages, is this the one most about human interaction? Uh, for some projects. So it sort of depends on the degree to which the model is going to operate autonomously. So if the model is going to, I mean, it requires humans because if it's going to be autonomous, the engineers have to change an existing system and those engineers are human. But anyway, this last step, the launch, the deployment, this is the whole point of the project. This is what we were headed towards, right? right it's this what you joked you're... about earlier where you said, you mean I got to go do something? <laughs> Right. This is where they actually do do something. Yeah, UPS is a great example that you thread throughout the entire book where it's like, in the end, you know, long story short, the drivers loved it because it, they, they could predict which trucks, you know, with some accuracy, which trucks should get which packages, even though all the packages weren't there yet. And it made all the operations so much more successful. But as I recall in the book, what was his name? Jack? Jack Levis. Yeah. He never talked about AI. He never talked about algorithms. He talked about, let's just improve the operations. And I think um, he initially went, he didn't even, it was all about, uh, he didn't even do the navigation part first. He, he just, he mm -hmm. did the, the, the loading first, right? Yeah. Picking which package. Go this is at a shipping center. So it's the last mile or last several miles of delivery where you're going into the truck. It's not the airplane part for UPS. So deciding which trucks should be assigned which group of packages for that day of driving. So any shipping center, you know, might have 100 trucks and it depends or they vary greatly. Um, so Jack Levis's title, uh, Senior Director of Process Management, right? He didn't name his title after a tech, any technology, let alone AI or machine learning. He's He's And he says that, I, I, I even quoted him, I think at some point where he says, you know, I don't have any machine learning projects. I have process improvement projects yes. that happen to use this, that, and the other technology. And indeed, machine learning's part and parcel, parcel, there's, well, there's a pun for you. Ah. you like pun. So the part Sweet. and parcel, <laughs> an accidental pun, but part and parcel to getting this thing to operate more efficiently. Yes, you do need prediction. Therefore, you do need machine learning, learning from data to predict. But the whole point was the operational improvement. So in a nutshell, what UPS did is, is, is unbelievable because this is a, a company that's more than 100 years old. And they had to change these long these longstanding operations. And yeah, that involved people making changes and a lot of manual. It wasn't autonomy. This is about people loading the trucks on the docks, for example, and about the executives. So you got to get them to buy in on both sides. But by, by improving that allocation or assignment to trucks, by predicting where you're going to need to be delivering tomorrow, um, and by prescribing the driving route to the, to the drivers, combine those systems, save to this day, UPS, 185 million miles a year, $350 million, 8 million gallons of fuel, 185,000 metric tons of emissions per year. Mm. <laughs> it's just amazing. But this sixth launch stage seems like it's the most difficult, and it's because of those those darn humans. And just so the listener knows, there's, there's quite a bit in there about all the different things you 
you have to be thinking about. You have to be thinking about. So there was one other th- thought I had about your book, and it brought to mind this. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. So I can just envision you on the keynote stage. Maybe you already do this, but you say, do not talk about AI. Do not talk about machine learning. Talk about business outcomes or operational improvements. Yeah, well, yes and no, right? So what I'm saying is we have to reframe it and, you know, in principle – Instead of calling a machine learning project, which only continues this problem of overly focusing on the core technology, which is so cool, in lieu of how you're going to change operations with it, Mm -hmm. um, let's reframe it and talk about an operations improvement project that happens to use machine learning. Where you now? But I'm kind of being facetious because if we start calling it that, people are going to that's people are going to fall asleep, man. I mean, that doesn't sound, you know, I mean. Look, at some point, people have to realize that's what it is. I don't really know if we should start calling it operations improvement projects. I mean, Jack Levis was Jack Levis was very successful, and he, he again his title senior director of process management, and he called it operations research, right. which is which is a term sometimes used instead of machine learning. But there is probably some value to to reminding people that yes, we're talking about this exciting technology everyone's talking about. Don't sort of don't hide that. And uh, so there's some there's some strange balance we need to strike between sort of excitement and focusing on powerful technology uh, versus overhype. Right. And again, back to Eric Siegel. On page 116, he writes, most people think data is boring. The word data is a deal killer at cocktail parties. I know this from personal experience. I have the data. Huh? <laughs> so... You have in there some ways to say it. Like, in other words, don't say AI will improve operations, right? That's that's do not do. Say, uh, we will improve operations using machine learning. And you have several yes. other examples of how to how to couch this, how to how to position it. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about the book is um, for you to talk about what if you could touch on some of the ethical responsibilities that should accompany the use of machine learning. You started to touch on this earlier. Yeah. So when you're running a machine learning project, you're affecting millions of people potentially, or, or often hundreds of thousands, if not millions, as far as their access to resources, right? Who's going to get housing? Who's going to get granted credit? Who's going to even be marketed the availability of a credit option? Um, and in the case of, of uh, law enforcement applications, how long somebody's going to be incarcerated? So th- there's, there's real consequences. Or, or who's going to be stopped, Sure. Well, who's going to be stopped? I haven't really heard about models, machine learning use, although it's certainly not. Out. Okay. Well, or I guess well, there's certain areas okay. they focus on. In in law enforcement, they are, yeah, who's going to be investigated? So sort of like pulling over a car, I don't know. It certainly sounds plausible. But as far as just investigating, uh, that it's very much targeted. And that can, that can, that can cause people to be held. Uh, you know, you can be held for a certain number of hours and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the treatment of individuals, these very consequential decisions have potential to um, violate civil rights and to basically be unfair. The problem is that people use the word fair, um, bias, or, or they want to avoid bias. They want to be fair. They want um, they want to be just. But these are 
all actually subjective terms. So what's happening right now in the so-called responsible machine learning or responsible AI movement, which I think is extremely important, but one of the main things that's happening right now is that corporations release press releases that sort of give lip service to these, but never get very concrete about how they're defined. So it sort of ends up being platitudes that aren't really actionable, but you have to make some tough calls. So I actually have some pretty strong opinions about this. For example, I think it's absolutely critical that machine learning not use protected classes directly. And there are plenty of experts who disagree with me, and I, I'm alarmed by that. I protected don't think that class could, being... A protected class being like race, national origin, ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And I don't I, I don't think we should be letting systems make decisions based even in part explicitly on your protected class, mm -hmm. because that's by definition discrimination. Now people will counter argue and they'll say, well, if you don't, if you make it colorblind, for example, and you just suppress that input, you don't let the thing access that directly, it's gonna find surrogate, it's gonna do it based on neighborhood. And that's true too, that needs to also be addressed, but that's not a reason to give up and not even put the first most fundamental restriction is that you don't, I mean, because otherwise, literally, you could have a job applicant say, hey, can you tell me why we I didn't get the job? And then you might have to, if you were going to disclose it, you might literally have to say, well, our model penalized you by seven points because you're black. That's just mechanically what this would do if people who are proponents of, of allowing all that data uh, you know, were permitted. And it's usually illegal, but not in all cases. Um, if you get past that, this sort of this idea of bias where it uses uh, other pot potential fields like your location or your job history or your um, incarceration history, and those end up being surrogates and highly are highly correlated of and therefore in a sense revealing of some of these protected classes like race, that's another issue. And what you end up with is models that essentially treat different categories uh, unfairly by having different false positive rates. So the false positive would be like, I'm going to keep you in prison longer. I'm going to make a sentencing decision or a parole decision on the basis of the high risk, according to the model, you have a high risk of recidivism. You're going you're gonna to commit a crime and be, uh, and be convicted again after release. So we're going to keep you in jail longer, but if it's a false positive, they, then you were unjustly jailed in that sense. And those mistakes are going to happen, whether it's a human or a machine driving or informing the decision. But when those, dis when those mistakes, those dire mistakes happen more often with an underprivileged group or a minority group, that's a huge problem. And that also ends up being a religious debate. But we've got to address these. And explicitly addressing them is exactly the way that right now, the most powerful organizations are finding ways to weasel out of putting their foot down. They, they choose language that sounds really promising, but it's platitudes, it's vagaries. And that's sort of a, a big problem with the current state of responsible machine learning. Well, please continue to call them out. I'm also going to include a link to uh, civilrightsdata.com. Yeah, that's my a bunch of my op-eds, about yeah. a dozen op-eds, uh, San Francisco Chronicle and Scientific American blog. Terrific. Well, uh, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, I think the main thing is that you need to get 
involved in that semi-technical but fascinating level of detail. You can't just you can't just delegate all this stuff off to the quants to the data scientists because it's not just about the number crunching. It's how is that going to actually be deployed, integrated, implemented? How is it going to change your process? So you need to get involved with what's predicted, how well, and what's done about it. Yeah, the quants do certain things really well, but they need help, and you're not helping them just by putting them off in some little black box. And honestly, if a knuckleheaded podcaster with a really good microphone can read this book and, and learn a few things, I think the, the business world at large can. So what is one thing the listeners could do today to put in action one idea from your book to get them thinking in the right direction? I think the most important thing is to look at your operations. And if and I know most listeners are focused on marketing. That's only one of many different large-scale operations. Who to contact, which transaction to audit for fraud, which uh, credit applicant to approve. These are all large-scale operations um, that pertain to most businesses. And you need to look at how those decisions are being driven right now. And where the lowest hanging fruit for machine learning is that those decisions can be improved on a large-scale, systematic way. And the way to do that will be with prediction. So that's the first step, is to identify where the opportunity is, and then you need to actually get involved in the details. You can't just sort of throw a, a technical effort in that direction. Right. And some of those things may not be the responsibility of the marketing department, let's say, but the, every single one of them has to do with customer experience, which mm -hmm. is marketing. So, you know, as David Packard allegedly said marketing is too important to be left to the marketing department, which doesn't mean you don't need a marketing department, but there's so much more that companies need to do to market themselves. Uh, your operations, very important. So are there any uh, recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading perhaps now that you've finished writing your book? Yeah, there's a book coming out the same month as mine by Charles Duhigg called uh, Super Communicators. How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. I'm really looking forward to that. And communication, you know, we need to bring, not just for machine learning, for all kinds of technology, there's, the, there's always this kind of abominable divide between the experts who are, are too lost in the weeds and then the stakeholders who, who, who have trouble sort of bridging that gap and, and seeing that the technology is actually understandable. So that's not just for machine learning. And in fact, it's, it operates across parts of your life. It looks like that book's going to be a great uh, way to explore communication. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. Gosh, it kind of reminds me of six uh, step six of uh, AbyssML as it relates to uh, those complicated, pesky humans. Yeah. So, well, terrific. Well, <laughs> at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, the books you've mentioned, your website, your LinkedIn profile. Actually, there's several links we're going to be having on here. And now, word to you, dear listener, please reach out in some way to Dr. Siegel. You can call him Eric. And congratulate him on this book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and coming back a second time. Guests on the show love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And I have a feeling that Dr. Siegel wanted to come back on this show because he may have heard from a few Marketing Book Podcast listeners. So... 
you know, because I'm sure he does a lot of interviews and he's thinking, yeah, I never heard anything from those people, so I'm not going back on their show. So, you know, reach out to him. Let him know you appreciate him being on the show, putting up with the, uh, the host's really stupid jokes. And if nothing else, just share this interview on LinkedIn. Tag us so we can thank you. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quotes. From page 200, don't passively affirm starry-eyed decision-makers who appear to be bowing at the altar of an all-capable AI. And on page 177, quoting the American economist Leo Chern, the computer is incredibly fast, accurate, and stupid. Man is unbelievably slow, inaccurate, and brilliant. The marriage of the two is a force beyond calculation. The book is The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment. The author is Eric Siegel. Eric, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. It's my pleasure, Douglas, and I love your goofy jokes. I love your goofy jokes. Thank you. Girl, look at that body. I work out.